I went to school to be a science teacher. I ended up working with a grad student in, frankly, terrible field conditions. Picture me counting the number of plants in open fields, under a blazing sun, with air so heavy with mosquitoes that I could swim through them. Despite this, I was weirdly hooked on research. I decided to ditch the high school teacher thing and become a science professor. I went to grad school and I did pretty well. I got grants, I did research, taught, all of that jazz. But something was missing. I was doing conservation research, but I didn't know where the results were going. Didn't matter. Was I making a difference? I know it sounds hokey, but I mean, that's how I felt. I got my PhD and then decided to switch my focus from doing science to explaining science. I did some policy work, a little bit of outreach, and then landed where I am now at AGU as a scientist who teaches other scientists how to tell stories and communicate science to non-scientists. Science communication matters. It's partly why I'm doing this podcast, and I hope that other scientists think it does too. Everyone has a story, even, or maybe especially, scientists. Science affects each and every one of us. Let's talk about it. From the American Geophysical Union, I'm Shane Hanlon, and this is Sci and Tell. Today, we're taking a break from hard science, scare quotes, to talk about communicating. And I couldn't think of a better person to chat with than our next guest. Our interviewer was Paul Molin. My name is Monica Feliu-Moher. I am a scientist by training and a science communicator by trade. And my work focuses on using science communication to make science more equitable and inclusive. And right now I do that working with two nonprofits called Ciencia Puerto Rico and, and iBiology. And broadly, I do... Anything from training scientists to do uh, effective and, and inclusive science communication to producing videos um, and documentaries and producing all different types of multimedia content to, to communicate science in, in more inclusive and equitable ways. My focus is on, on effective science communication at, at all different levels. I, I like to think about my work, particularly my work in, in training scientists and building their capacity to communicate effectively as, as giving them uh, a toolkit that they can adapt to, to different scenarios so that they can be effective communicating their ideas when they're asking for funding, when they're finding collaborators, when they're finding a job, but that they can also be effective when they're communicating with people who are not experts, who are policymakers or educators. And so I, I try to focus on the process of effective communication with a, a particular emphasis on how to make sure that that process is also inclusive of different people, different cultures, different levels of, of expertise. But in, in terms of, you know, when I think about the, the products that I'm often creating, my focus is on communicating science to, to non-experts, particularly to populations that have been historically marginalized by and from science. Why is it 
important to be able to effectively communicate to those populations that have been marginalized or, or people who don't speak science? I think there's several reasons. Um, first, there's there's equity. You know, the fact that these there's some populations like um, I was born and raised in in Puerto Rico, and broadly, if you think about people who who speak Spanish or Latinx, they have been historically marginalized, even abused and oppressed by science. And so there is an aspect of equity, of correcting some of those historical inequities and, and exclusion. But there's also more, more practical things. Um, if we take the, the COVID-19 pandemic, it has disproportionately impacted Latinx populations in, in the United States. And unfortunately, when you look at Latinx people who who speak Spanish, whose you know English is not their first language. There are lower levels of health literacy. They're you know they know less about health topics, or they're because they have less proficiency with that kind of knowledge. It means that when they go to the doctor, they don't have enough information to be able to ask the right questions up, up to of their doctor about you know is this medication going to have a side effect? Should I get, you know, when should I get vaccinated? Those those kinds of things. That lack of information that that population faces has direct impact to, to the decisions that they have to make about their health, about the health of, of their loved ones. And so because there is that lack of, of information, it means that a population that's already vulnerable, it's going to be even more vulnerable in, in, in a situation like, like a pandemic. And so there's, there's a good part of, of my work that is focused on Spanish language, science communication, and not just making sure that information is available in Spanish, um, for Spanish-speaking populations, but that it also culturally translates, that it the information is presented in a way that is relevant to the culture, the context, the realities, um, in my case, of, of different Puerto Rican populations so that they can take that information and act upon it, use it to make decisions about their health, about how they are going to protect each other and their communities. I mean, I think when you connect science to people's culture, context, their values, their life experiences, identities, the things that matter to them, I think coming in with, I'm going to respect you as, as a group, as an audience, um, I'm going to understand where you're coming from, who you are, um, your historical relationship with science. You know, when you look at um populations that have been historically marginalized, they have been abused by science. We can't deny that. And so when people say, you know, I, I'm not sure that this vaccine is safe. Like I've heard a lot, I've been doing a lot of work with um, different marginalized communities in Puerto Rico to promote COVID-19 prevention. And, and when it comes to vaccines, their main concerns are, is it safe? Was it developed too quickly? What are the ingredients? Is this going to actually get to people like me? Is it going to reach my community? And, and when it comes to, is it safe? 
Um, what are the ingredients? You know, early on, we heard a lot about, and this is part of mostly part of my work with Ciencia Puerto Rico. We heard a lot about, are they experimenting with us? And if you look at the history in Puerto Rico, the birth control pill was tested on Puerto Rican women without their consent and without their knowledge. So if you historically, if you look at what's happened with science and medicine and Puerto Rican populations, it is not a surprise that they're like, well, am I being experimented on? And so I have to take that into account and think about and respect that, respect that there is a mistrust and then work with those populations to say, I understand where you're coming from. I understand your concerns. You know, here's how I can put the knowledge that I have about science and, and put it in your service. I grew up in, in a very rural, remote community in, in Puerto Rico, working class community. And, and so I, I was surrounded by science. You know, I grew up in basically a farm with a bunch of animals. Um, and so my environment was the first thing that got me interested in science. I was always, since I was very little, I was into building things. I was into living things. I was, you know, into biology. I wanted to understand how living things worked, but I didn't necessarily know that I could be a scientist. The, the, the role models, the references that I had about what being a scientist was or what doing science looked like were very foreign to me. You know, they mostly came from from TV and all of the science shows that I used to watch were produced in the U.S. They were originally in English, dubbed in Spanish. And so even the Spanish that they were speaking was not really, didn't really sound like my own. It was kind of that generic Spanish and, and of course, many of them, they didn't look like me. They didn't even act like me. And even in school, I was often learning about, you know, the historical figures, Einstein's, the Marie Curie's, that kind of thing. And so I didn't have those references of science was being done in Puerto Rico. Science was being done by Puerto Ricans. And so I, I didn't know that I could be a scientist, but I, I was very fortunate to be encouraged that science interest was always encouraged by by my parents and and you know now as an adult i've realized that this this perception that i didn't know scientists was actually not quite true what was it like to go from an undergrad in you know in Puerto Rico, where you didn't really know until pretty late in your undergrad that you could even make science what it became for you, to go into these schools that are known for science and being surrounded by people who have been kind of on this trajectory their whole life. And was there an overwhelming aspect of it? Yeah. <laughs> um, it was It was a shock. Um, it, it, it was definitely a shock. I mean, the, the lab where I was a tech, where I, I was a technician at for three years, that just that lab was like twice the size of the entire department where I did my undergrad research. And so it was a shock at multiple levels. Um, you know, this, when I made this move, it was the first time that I lived away from my friends and my family it was a shock because of the language, you know, English, English is not my first language. Spanish is my first language. And so 
I had to go from speaking Spanish all day, every day to speaking English most of the time. The weather was certainly a shock, but also the, the, the culture, like the institutional culture was, was different. You know, before moving to, to the U.S., I, I was always very proud of being a Puerto Rican scientist. Like that was, as a scientist, that was my main identity. And then after I moved to the U.S., I kind of felt like I had to suppress that, my Puerto Rican-ness. Um, I felt like I, I needed to be a scientist first and foremost, and that it shouldn't really matter what, you know, my identities, like th those things shouldn't really matter. And that kind of caused an identity crisis for me um, because, you know, I had always been so proud of this. And and for, for a time, I thought, you know, who I am doesn't really matter. It, it's it's all about the contributions that I, I, I can make to science, my intellectual contributions to science. And eventually, actually through science communication, I was able to realize that that's BS. <laughs> That 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 who I am, like my life experiences, my culture, my identities, and and you know the cultures and identities and backgrounds of people, they matter. They inform how people approach science, how they approach their work, and 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 that it is important that we recognize the value of those, and that people are able to bring those into into their work and into how they they do science because you know that diversity of thought and, and of experience really enriches um, the scientific enterprise. I think I may be one of like I may be the only person or one of like very few people to be accepted into my graduate program twice. I had so I started my PhD in 2007, um, but that wasn't the plan. The plan was I would start my PhD in 2006. And I had originally decided that I would go to Stanford to do my PhD. I, um, you know, in the end, it was between Stanford and Harvard, which are, you know, I mean, poor me, right? It, it, you know, they were both wonderful choices. And I decided, you know, I'm going to go to Stanford. I'm going to kind of be adventurous, even though at that point of my life, moving to the West Coast was very scary, was very far from home. And I was like, ask right, I'm going to do it anyway. And as I was getting ready, you know, within that year, 2006 and 2007, my father had a mental health crisis. He, he suffers from, from bipolar depression. Um, and he had a, a pretty severe crisis that put everything on hold for me. Um, I had to, you know, go home to, to manage that with my family. And then once I came back to Boston, I was like, is going, you know, 3000 plus miles away from my family, the thing that I need to do now. And so I actually chose to defer grad school, my at my admission. Um, so basically push it back a year. And then in that time, I realized I, I can't move that far. Um, you know, I'm not going to stop from pursuing my dreams, but I can't move away that far. So I actually 
went through the, the grad school application process a second time because I realized I needed to stay in the East Coast, that I did ultimately wanted to go to Harvard for my graduate program and I had to reapply. I had to like talk to all these people, like program coordinators and directors and be like, I said no, but actually, <laughs> back seats, please. <laughs> um, you know, like here are the reasons why I think, you know, I basically made a mistake in in saying I was going to go to Stanford, that I, what I want is to really go here. And, and these are personal reasons, not just science reasons, but there are personal reasons why I want to stay here and I need to stay in the East Coast. And so I, I was fortunate to have their their support and you know even though I had to go through the process again I I eventually was accepted a second time and you know I did decide to go to Harvard for for graduate school and so you know I think you're right when you look at when you just look at the things that are on my CV it it, it gives the impression that it's that storybook success, like success has been linear, which I think is what a lot of people have the perception. Like, you know, when you have all these accolades, it's like, oh yeah, you went from one thing to the next, but you're not seeing all of the hard work. You're not seeing all of the blood, sweat, and tears. You're not seeing all of the failures that people go through. I think one of the biggest hurdles for not just for me, but for people with my background is that we don't have access to, to the implicit rules of, in my case of, of science and, and academia that you're, you know, supposed or expected to fit certain boxes or write things or say things in a certain way that you're supposed to have certain experiences that then make you competitive to say, you know, complete a PhD in an Ivy League. You know, I think now I, I do a lot of of mentoring of of undergraduate and graduate students in particular and and, you know, I, one of the things where I feel I can help them most is in navigating those implicit rules that nobody teaches you. Like, how do you write a cover letter? How do you write a statement? What do you think you're most proud of in your career? I am most proud of the 15 years plus of science communication work that I've been doing in Puerto Rico. Um, you know, it's, this work really started, I stumbled upon science communication. I, I, I didn't know that science communication was just like, I didn't know that I could be a researcher, a research scientist. I didn't know that I, science communication was a career that I could pursue. Um, I kind of stumbled upon it, you know, 15 years ago when I started volunteering with, with Ciencia Puerto Rico, which is one of the nonprofits that I work with right now. And, you know, this is a community that brings together people who are interested in science in Puerto Rico and, and taps into the collective knowledge of that community to create social impact in Puerto Rico through communication and education and supporting the professional development of scientists and, and their civic participation. So I actually 
don't like to think about work-life balance. I like to think about work-life integration. I feel like balance key, I don't know, it fosters this idea of like things are perfectly balanced or like perfectly kind of equal or equalized. And it, that, it that kind of makes work the bad guy too, right? Yeah. Well, and it doesn't fit, honestly, doesn't fit my reality. Uh, and, and so I, 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 I think about integration, like integrating the things that are important to me. And, and in my case, my work is very important to me. I, I see, you know, my work in, in using science communication for, as a tool for, for equity and inclusion. It, it's part of my life mission to be quite honest. And so, it is at times hard for me to kind of shut that part of my brain down and be like, okay, I'm not actually going to do work. But something that's equally important to me is, is, is my family and my friends and, and, and my loved ones and, and, and spending quality time with them. And so I think about how do I integrate all, all those things that make me feel whole as a human being. And, and I recognize that there are going to be times because of my work demands or my, the demands of my personal life where I'm going to have to put more time and energy into, you know, spending time with, with my family and connecting with my loved ones. And then are other times where I'm going to have to spend more time and energy thinking about work. Um, but I also try to be intentional and this is, constant work for me of setting boundaries of understanding you know you are working too much and you are feeling burnt out and 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 recognizing that and setting the boundaries because especially for my work sometimes the urgency of addressing the inequities that i see if they feel heavy it feels like there's so much to do and there's so little time and there's so many things i have to fix that it can be really overwhelming at times, but I, I've come to understand that setting those boundaries and taking care of myself is an important part of, of the changes that I want to create in the world. Because if I'm not healthy and I'm not, if I don't feel whole, then I am not going to be able to do that heavy lifting, that, that heavy work that's going to be required of me. So I love to cook to, to kind of disconnect from, from other things kind of clear my mind. And I, I try to make sure that I make time for that. And, and, and also, you know, especially during this pandemic, I've, it's, I used to go to Puerto Rico three or four times a year for, for work, but also to visit my family. Most of my family is there and it's been more than a year since I've seen them. Um, and so I've, I've been, trying to make sure that I'm connecting with people on the phone or video conferencing to, to make up for, for that um, until I'm fully vaccinated and, and we can travel again and I can go see them and hug them. That'd be awesome. Yes. I'm very much looking forward to that. As of this recording, I received my second dose of the Pfizer vaccine, I guess, a week ago today. I am literally counting down the days until I can hug my parents again. So I know that feeling. And I want to thank Monica for taking the time to chat with us. Special thanks to NASA for making this episode possible and to Paul Molin for conducting the interview. 
If you liked what you've heard, stay tuned for future episodes. You can subscribe to Scientel wherever you get your podcast and find us at Scientel, all spelled out, org. From this scientist in the studio to all of you out there in the world, thanks for listening to our stories. Thank you.